Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week, Dick Van Dyke, has been entertaining the public for almost 70 years. He's a charming and a talented man with so many great performances under his belt, and yet the world insists on remembering one bad accent. Helen Mirren, Judy Dench, uh, Jeremy Irons, who were asked who did the worst British accent in the history of movies. And, of course, I won, hands down. <laughs> I, I'm number one in that respect. But I, I was working with an entire cast of Brits. Nobody said to me, you know, you really ought to work on that. I was so busy with the singing and dancing. Yeah, I mean, I it seems like a testament to the power of the rest of your performance. <laughs> you know, it really is a wonderful performance and a wonderful film. I always say it's not a cockney. It's a little shire way in the north of England that had been settled by people from Ohio. (laughs) It's bullseye. (laughs) Coming up, I'll talk to Dick Van Dyke, now 90 years old. He's just published a book called Keep Moving and Other Tips and Truths About Aging. Did I tell you the title I wanted they wouldn't buy? What to do while circling the drain. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great title. They wouldn't go for it. (laughs) Then later, pop culture critic and writer Margaret Wappler tells us about Post, the first album to show us who Bjork really is. For every moment that she's sort of this charming little kitten purring in your ear, she's also going to shriek and be shrill and almost break your eardrums. And I'll tell you about how Ralph Lauren captured the shared Americanness of Sonia Sotomayor, Jay-Z, and Donald Trump. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Dick Van Dyke is pleasant company. It's actually kind of his stock and trade. He's as pleasant in his new book about getting old, keep moving, as he was in his movies or in his TV shows. You're not surprised to read that he likes to sing and dance every day or that he has a favorite checker at the grocery store. Her name is Debbie. Anyway, here's a bit of one of the greatest TV comedies of all time, The Dick Van Dyke Show. Rob and Laura, played by Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore, have accidentally eavesdropped on their neighbors. And they didn't like what they heard, but the neighbors are coming over to play charades. Laura is acting out the name of a song. Uh, it's a song title. First word. Uh, uh, over. A beat. Pat. Uh, Rush. Destroy. <laughs> what? Oh, second word. Okay, second. A uh, little word. Uh, small. Petty. Hypocritical. Two-faced. <laughs> Second word is petty, two-faced. You can do the whole thing. The whole thing. Okay. Uh, March. Yeah. Walk. Stop. Stop all over people. Walk all over people. Goose them. (laughs) Treachery. Treachery. Two-faced. Two-faced. Stab. Stab in the back. Stab in the back. Uh, A point. Point. Finger. Finger. Accuse. Indict. Malicious accusery. (laughs) That's right. Pearl Harbor. I got it. What is it? On the street where you live. (laughs) 
Dick Van Dyke, welcome to Bullseye. It's so great to have you on the show. Glad to be here, Judd. <laughs> I'm gl- I was glad to read. You know, in in your new book, there's a dialogue that you have with Carl Reiner, yeah, who's a, a little bit older than you. Um, Three years. You'll get there. And uh, he, of course, created the Dick Van Dyke Show. And there's a little part where he describes that just once in a while, his t- you know his TiVo records Dick Van Dyke from off of some cable channel. And uh, once in a while, when he's getting ready to go to bed, he'll just watch some Dick Van Dyke and think, oh, we did a good job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was that one line you said, murderous? <laughs> My favorite was goose-stepping. <laughs> so little... A little fascist humor on uh, television in 1965 or whatever it was. (laughs) Um, Did you intend to be uh, an entertainer when you were a kid? Uh, No, I really didn't. It was too far away. It was something I didn't. I loved. I was in all the shows in school. I was a radio announcer at 17, and uh, I really never thought about it. I loved entertaining, but as a profession. It was just a, a too far away to think about. It happened incrementally. What kind of radio announcer were you? It was during the war. Everybody was getting drafted. I saw the ad in the paper, and I went down and auditioned. We had a 250-watt CBS affiliate, and I got the job. I did the news and uh, had a disc jockey show and everything. I loved radio. I dreamed of becoming a television announcer. But uh, things went a lot further than that. I mean, this was the – you're you dreaming about a, becoming a television announcer. This is qu- quite literally the dawn of television. Absolutely. I was on television back when you had to wear gray makeup and black lipstick in 1948. <laughs> I probably was in earlier than anybody. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> like, you're... not to watch. It seems fine to watch in black and white. But in real life, in front of those giant lights, it must have oh, been awful. Oh, it was. Otherwise, it was fuzzy. You, 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 everything had to be distinct and stark. It was at the top of Mount Wilson. We had to go up to where the antenna was. That was the only studio there was. Um, I want to talk to you about your show business career before you got into broadcasting. And obviously, uh, you know, television especially has been your bread and butter for most of your life. But before you were in television, you and a friend from back home or or was it a friend from the service had a a stage show. And I don't think I entirely understand what – the stage show was. Can you describe it to me? It was something that's very popular, now karaoke. We did pantomime to records. That was our act. <laughs> I mean, it's very popular now, but people don't pay to see it. <laughs> so what was? What did you do besides mouth the words? Well, we, we made comedy out of it. If it was opera, we'd do it funny. Uh, there was a group called the Spike Jones Band. We did those, which are kind of, uh, we were very, very broad. There's no doubt about that. I was kind of the Jerry Lewis of the act. But we worked uh, in Vegas and Reno, here, New York. It was very popular. There were several uh, groups doing record pantomime. And uh, I thought that was a lark, and one day I'd go home and do something serious with my life. But one thing happened after another. I never got out of the business. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Dick Van Dyke. His new book is called Keep Moving and Other Tips and Truths About Aging. We actually have a clip of you on television from before the Dick Van Dyke show. You had a long run with CBS where you were 
hosting basically every working on every kind of television program. <laughs> you hosted The Price is Right, for one thing. Uh, as, a, as a tryout, <laughs> I, they were, uh, Gus and Todman was developing the show. They'd bring in people off the street, and they needed someone to be the MC. And I would go home to my wife and say, they're doing this show of people guessing how much something costs. It'll never go. What was that, 40 <laughs> years ago, probably? I didn't understand it. You hosted the CBS Morning Show uh, <laughs> alongside uh, someone folks might have heard of called Walter Cronkite. Yes. I was 29 and didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> um, this is a clip of you hosting a show called uh, CBS Cartoon Theater. <laughs> it was a you know uh, an anthology show, a package show of uh, what I presume were probably theatrical cartoons. Mm-hmm. So uh, what you will hear – uh, mostly is Dick Van Dyke doing physical comedy in interaction with the cartoon characters that are uh, on a TV screen next to <laughs> As my friends have just indicated, I'm Dick Van Dyke. Good evening. We'd all like to welcome you to CBS Cartoon Theater. The stars of our show, whom you no doubt have recognized, are Heckle and Jekyll, Dickie Duck, Sour Puss, Gandy Goose, and Little Roper. Each week, our stars, whom I'm very happy to call my friends, will appear... Hey, boss! Hey, boss! You've got snacks on your sleeve. There's nothing on my sleeve. Oh, yes. You've got snacks on your sleeve. I have? What's next? The show. The show's next. Oh my God. <laughs> Some very high-end material there. <laughs> I have no recollection of that. You know, the funny thing was I came to CBS on a seven-year contract. At the end of three years, they let me go. They didn't know what to do with me, and I didn't know what to do with me. That's the part that I'm interested in. Did you feel like you had a place to go in show business, a target? Did you just think, I want to do something and I have to figure out what it is? <laughs> That's the answer. I had to figure out what it was. Because I really didn't know. I was happy to have the job. I was making more than I'd ever made in local television. But when they let me go, uh, I had three kids and a house and didn't know what I was going to do. So ABC gave me a a game show called Mother's Day, where we did, like, diaper-changing contests. (laughs) It was terrible. But after the show, I'd gotten an audition for anything in the theater, maybe except opera and ballet. I got a few callbacks and finally got in a review, which saved my neck, and found out that I could uh, sing and dance a little. That's what, I, what I'm curious because um, you had not done a lot of acting acting before that, right? No, no, none. It's high school. So yeah. what made you think that you could – you were also not a singer or dancer particularly. <laughs> so what made you think that it, that your plan was to go from the diaper-changing contest <laughs> to the Great White Way? <laughs> I'm mostly desperation. You know, I had to make a living. And I, I always knew that I was uh, agile. You know, I, I thought, well, I probably could dance. I could s- uh, carry a tune. That was about it. And I was amazed again in this little review called The Girls Against the Boys. Bert Lahr and Nancy Walker. We only lasted two weeks. <laughs> and we were off. And then I auditioned for Bye Bye Birdie and got the part, which, of course, changed my life. I can I can only imagine. I mean, what was it like to go into that audition 
with what I'm sure were a sea of, you know, seasoned Broadway professionals, you know, super triple threats. Yes. And, um, you know, you're like, well, I can carry a tune and I'm very charming when I smile. <laughs> right. I, like many other uh, times in my early career, my heart was in my mouth. I was scared to death. And I got up and sang a little song from Music Man and did a little soft shoe. What, to, what song from the Music Man uh, did you sing? There was love all around, but I never heard. And then I sang uh, Amy that uh, Ray Bolger had done and did a little soft shoe. And Gower Champion walked up on the stage and said, you have the part. And I almost fell into a faint. I have a feeling he saw himself because we were exactly the same size and physique. And I think maybe he thought, I said, you know, I really can't dance. He said, we'll teach you. And uh, that's when I, it was like flying, learning those dance steps. My God, it was fun for me. Let's take a listen to uh, another clip from the Dick Van Dyke show. And my guest is Dick Van Dyke. So Rob, Dick Van Dyke's character, is a television writer on the show, TV, TV comedy writer. And um, he, he has to have his show's sponsor over for dinner in this episode. And he and his wife, Laura, have been um, fussing over everything. But the, the whole thing is going, you'll be surprised to learn, very poorly. How about a drink? Martha and I don't drink. I always say that alcohol is too rich for my carburetor. <laughs> well, there's nothing funny about that. No. That's not funny. Pithy, though. Yes, it is. It's pithy. By the way, what did you think of last week's show? Well, I thought last week's show was very funny. Boy, so did I. If you like slapstick humor. Well, you can overdo it. I, of course, like slapstick humor. I love it. But not on my show. No, not not on our particular show. Not every week. No, it's too much. I like it once in a while. That's me. I like it once in a while. But generally, you both enjoy the show? Yes, I I did. (laughs) Uh, Are you sure you wouldn't care for an hors d'oeuvre? Or a drink. We don't drink. Oh, <laughs> too rich for your carburetor. <laughs> what a great dialogue. Um, <laughs> when, when did you uh, when did you audition for the Dick Van Dyke Show? Des- describe to me wh- where you were at. And- I, I didn't audition. I think Carl had seen me in Bye Bye Birdie and thought I'd be good in the part and uh, sent me about 10 or 11 scripts he'd written. And I had had a, a pilot of my own I threw it out the window. The writing was just brilliant. And I said, let me know when to come. I took a week off from the show and went out and did the pilot. No, I got hired kind of sight unseen. I didn't have to audition. You know, it's funny because uh, uh, Carl Reiner famously wrote the show for himself to star in. I think they made a pilot as well with him on screen. Yes. And, you know, it didn't go. And... His agent basically convinced him, look, you've got half a season's worth of – you've got 13 scripts that are solid gold. Don't throw don't throw the baby away with the bathwater here. <laughs> yes. um, what was it like to go in and not just – you know, I think there, for an actor, you often hear about it being a little bit weird to play a role based on a real person in front of that real person. But what is it like when that not only is that person your boss, uh, but he is also a guy who failed at playing himself? <laughs> well, I saw the pilot, and he really was not right. 
I mean, he was good. He was anxiety-ridden and nervous, and uh, it, it, didn't, it really didn't sound, it wasn't funny. So he let me literally play myself. He was great at listening to your, your cadence, your, the way you spoke, and uh, wrote it that way. So you really, all I had you to do was say the lines. He did that with every actor. It was amazing. Did you meet your co-star, Mary Tyler Moore, like when you showed up for work the first day? When I showed up for work for the rehearsal, yeah. She was wonderful. I, I, she was about 12 years younger. And I said, isn't she a little young? As it turned out, it, she was unbelievably good. But then on two or three shows, she picked up the comedy and went with it. I would have been very uncomfortable uh, working with Mary Tyler Moore <laughs> because I have a kind of like a moral feeling that no one that good-looking should be that funny. <laughs> like, it's kind of no fair. <laughs> like, you're it. a very handsome man yourself, Mr. Van Dyke. <laughs> but at least you have a big nose. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Thank you, yeah. Oh, have I got nose jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I mean, but... It's, a, it's a great comfort to me that at least you're not perfect. Fairy <laughs> 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 Tyler was so good-looking and so funny. It's like, give me a break, lady. Yeah, she had never done comedy. And the first couple of shows, she was searching. But she had Maury and, and Rosemary and me all who had some timing. And she picked it up so fast and became probably the best comedian ever. And you're right, the, the best looking one, too. When you were doing that show, uh, I know that uh, I know you got sober uh, in middle age. Yeah. Um, were you drinking when you were doing that show? On. I was a normal drinker. Then it, it happened uh, after that, it began to catch up with me. I'd gone uh, to England to do Shitty City Bang Bang. And I did a few movies in a row there. And I don't know whether it was pressure or what, but I suddenly found myself drinking more than I should. And uh, how did you, I mean, how did you recognize, did you recognize that? At yes. Yes. I never drank at work and I never drank publicly, really. I drank at home. But instead of having a martini, I would have three or four martinis and uh, wake up with a kind of a hangover in the morning. I think I was very shy, and I found that a martini or two loosened me up, and suddenly I became really sociable. And I think that was the reason that I started it. But I had no idea that I had addiction in my personality. Did it take a lot for you to get on stage to be as... Um kind of big and warm and sociable as your character in entertainment is? No, I, I never was very nervous. I was nervous the uh, opening night of Bye Bye Birdie on Broadway. Uh, I'm scared to death. But mo I love to perform so and working with an audience that I, I never really got very nervous. Um, was there something different about how you felt in a private situation and in a public situation? And what do you think it was? I don't know. I, I loved performing to an audience, to a mass of people. One-on-one -on -one was when I was a little... I used to have a hard time in interviews, even. But uh, I finally got over it. And the drinking uh, just slowly disappeared, little by little. You write in your new book that part of it was, although you're not... Uh, you believe in a higher power but aren't necessarily religious, that part of it was prayer for you. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think... Well, I, I don't know whether you're praying to yourself or to the Almighty or what. I'm just saying that it works. It helped me a lot, and I still do. How did you find it? I mean... Well, I was raised in a, a Presbyterian family, and I had been um, 
uh, a deacon in the church. I had taught Sunday school in, out on Long Island to uh, 13-year-olds. So, uh, I, I, you know, there was a connection, a spiritual connection for me, even though I kind of disconnected from the institutional church. Was it natural to you when you were uh, when you were having really difficult problems with alcoholism? And I think you write also in the book that you had uh, you had gone into AA and you had done various other yes. things that hadn't helped you solve the problem or had helped you but not enough. Was it natural to you to pray for help? Yes. Oh yeah. I, I'm a prayer who says a lot of thank yous. <laughs> I still do. When something good happens, I always say. Thank you for that, because I have been awfully lucky in my life. I recommend it for anybody. It's, it's there's something that uh, I don't know what it is wholesome about it, but uh, it's almost like a confession, getting things off your mind. I, it's for me, it's it's worthy of doing. Uh, you also write in the book that there's. There's sort of there's bigger chapters and littler chapters. One of them is a little <laughs> poem that you wrote about writing down your thoughts and feelings and your plans for the next day in a notebook next to your bed to let them go. Um, yes, that's true. So that you can come back to them. Yeah. And I yeah. wonder if part of the appeal of prayer for you is that feeling that you are letting something out into the world or letting something travel to God and thus not having to feel like you have to hold it. I think you're probably right. I kind of handed it over so I don't have to. <laughs> Mel Brooks uh, went to a psychiatrist and said, during the night I get wonderful ideas. In the morning I wake up and I can't remember them. He said, write it down. So he put a pencil and paper beside. One night he had a brilliant idea. And he looked at his notebook in the morning, and it said, write it down. (laughs) (laughs) It's a stupid joke. (laughs) Um, I'll continue my conversation with Dick Van Dyke after a break. We'll talk about Mary Poppins and Andy Kaufman. Plus, Dick shares some of the secrets that make him one of the world's most effervescent 90-year-olds. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org. NPR. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, Sotheby's Institute of Art. What exactly is the true value of art? If you want to work in the art world or understand how galleries, auction houses, and art investments operate, consider an education at Sotheby's Institute of Art, the Graduate School of Art and its markets. From fully accredited master's degrees in art business and contemporary art to continuing education courses, with campuses in New York, Los Angeles, London, and online, register or apply now at sotheby'sinstitute.com. Here's a great way to listen to Bullseye, NPR One. It's an app for your phone, kind of like Pandora for public radio. It's full of news and podcasts, including Bullseye. Whenever you're ready to listen, NPR One has something great just for you. Find it on your app store. NPR, O-N-E. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Dick Van Dyke. His new book is called Keep Moving and Other Tips and Truths About Aging. And since I've got Dick Van Dyke here, I probably ought to play some Mary Poppins, huh? Oh, my God. Um, you're out there. You've probably seen Mary Poppins. I mean, if you haven't, you probably should because it's great. 
Um, uh, so obviously, uh, one of the characters Dick Van Dyke plays in Mary Poppins is Bert the Chimney Sweep. Uh, this is one of his signature tunes, Chim Chim Cheree. Chim Chimney, Chim Chimney, Chim Chim Cheree. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim Chimney, Chim Chimney, Chim Chim Cheree. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Or blow me a kiss. And that's lucky too. Now, that, during that little piece there, the cockney wasn't that bad. But I've taken it on the chin. Oh, my God. All my life. It's terrible. Oh, it really is. There's a few moments of a little bit of something. Yeah, here there. and there, I, I, almost, I almost got it. There, there was a, a tweet I saw. Uh, the Helen Mirren, Judy Dench, uh, Jeremy Irons who were asked who did the worst British accent in the history of movies. And, of course, I won, hands down. <laughs> I, I'm number one in that respect. But I, I was working with an entire cast of Brits. Nobody said to me, you know, you're really out of work on that. I was so busy with the singing and dancing. I mean, I it seems like a testament to the power of the rest of your performance. <laughs> it really is a wonderful performance <laughs> and a wonderful film. I always say it's not a cockney. It's a little shire way in the north of England that had been settled by people from Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, in this, so I, I was so happy to have run across this interview that you did in 1964 or whenever it was. And it was uh, while Mary Poppins was in post-production, which was a quite an elaborate post-production because they were, you know, there's all these animated sequences and special effects sequences in the yes. film. You said in this interview... I thought that the movie of Bye Bye Birdie stunk, basically. I'm paraphrasing here, but <laughs> you did not mince words about how you felt that the film had uh, messed up the stage show. But yes. you said, but I just made a Disney movie that I think is something that will be a landmark film of its type. Yeah. And which, of course, it is. But I think it's rare for someone to have so strong of a feeling on especially a film project. Um, and I wonder what about working on that film made you feel like, wow, this actually is something really special. We all felt it almost every day. There, there was something magical happening. The the songs the Sherman Brothers wrote and the Mark and Dee Dee Wood who did the choreography, everything just had life to it. I'd been in movies where the producer comes in in the morning and says, oh, the dailies were great. One, and you know they weren't. But we just all felt that something really magical was happening. We couldn't wait to come to work, even though it was hard. Some of the dancers nearly killed me <laughs> at that time. But uh, I just, we all knew it just was going to be a good movie. I wonder if after the Dick Van Dyke show ended, you ever found yourself wondering, huh, am I just going to be, is my career going to be the guy from the Dick Van Dyke show? Oh, yeah. And uh, that's what happened. <laughs> I was either Bert or, or uh, Rob Petrie. Strangely enough, it was supposed to be Petri. Nobody told me. I said Petri on this on this the uh, first show. Nobody ever corrected me. <laughs> no, I really uh, fortunately ended up doing a movie called uh, The Morning After, uh, a uh, good movie about about alcoholism. So good, as a matter of fact, that it, uh, they show it in a lot of the rehab centers because the guy doesn't make it. We got in quite a bit of trouble with the national. Council on Alcoholism. They wanted it to have a happy ending, and we let them die. 
And this had a really positive effect on a lot of people in rehab. were, Were you already sober by the time you did that movie? Just barely. Just barely. At, uh, I noticed that the, at the rap party, nobody drank anything but orange juice. It kind of affected everybody. But I, I, I did Chitty Bang Bang and uh, the one about smoking, which is so much fun to do, with Norman Lear. So I got a lot of good projects. I want to play uh, a clip from a project of yours that I had never heard anything about until I started reading, preparing for this interview. Um, it was, you know, the 1970s were the golden age of television comedy variety, and you had a show called Van Dyke and Company. Yes. Among the cast of Van Dyke and Company were uh, Bob Einstein, who folks might know as Super Dave Osborne. Right. I, and a guy called Andy Kaufman. And it, this thing, this show ran very briefly, but won— Twelve, an, 12 shows. But won an Emmy. I know. And um, so one of the gags on the show is that uh, Andy Kaufman would interrupt you when you were trying to do something. Yes. He would interrupt you in character. And um, he would just do these, you know, weird Andy Kaufman things. (laughs) And um, so in this clip, uh, you're doing a sketch with uh, John Denver. Yes. uh, Pretty much the perfect person to be doing a sketch with. and and everything. Yeah. And uh, and Andy Kaufman interrupts you in character. What are you doing here? You remember I was on your, your show? You said, you said that I could come back. Yeah, well, first of all, don't believe everything I say. And second of all, you're interrupting the sketch here. All right, okay. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy's man here who was on our Fonzie lookalike contest last week. And he came out and he told a joke and he was terrific. And I'm sure we're going to have him back on our show sometime. You know, Dick, I don't know about you, but this puppet suit is getting very uncomfortable. Yeah, I know it, John. I'm sorry. Look, I'll, I'll take care of it, okay? Why, why don't you uh, take, you could take off your puppet suit and when you, you go down to take it off, I could play a record and uh, do a job. <laughs> I think we, we had Andy on a lot. We just loved him. We, when he first auditioned uh, for all the writers, he would play his tom-toms and, and did his thing. All the writers got up and walked out on him. said, this guy is nothing. You know, what is he? They didn't understand what he was doing at all. Neither did I, but it was funny. <laughs> Wait, I mean, how did, how did he? Okay, so I can see him coming in and playing tom-toms and everybody walking out. That part I get. Yeah. So how did the second part come in where he came on the show all the time? The audience loved it, loved the fact that he would come in and interrupt us. And he was getting such good feedback from the audience that we just had to use him. But, you know, he was a transcendental meditation guy. And we'd be standing, one day we were standing on the hall arguing about something. I looked down and realized that Andy is sitting there in a lotus position meditating. He did it a lot. He was very strange. It was very hard to talk to personally. You couldn't get a conversation going with Andy. I don't know what it was. (laughs) It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Dick Van Dyke. His new book is Keep Moving and Other Tips and Truths About Aging. You you put, you put have a picture in the new book of uh, you in some promo shots from uh, the 50s, from before you were a success, let's yep. say, before you were a grand <laughs> success. And um, one of the things you say is that 
you always wanted to look like a success even before you were. Um, and yeah, I wonder, I wonder how you came to value looking good. I mean, that's one of the things that I remember about the Dick Van Dyke show is Rob Petrie always looked great. Yeah. Um, and he had a good suit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so why do you think that was important to you? My father, who didn't have any money at all, was kind of a clothes horse. He, so he, was built like Fred Astaire. He would go to Chicago and buy a Bond suit, two pair of pants, and a coat for $40. But somehow, on him, they looked good. He could put anything on. And he was always a sharp dresser for a guy who didn't have the the money to do it. And I admired my dad. And I liked uh, the way Astaire and uh, Cary Grant and uh, Walter Pigeon, I, I wanted to emulate those guys. Today, kids want to emulate hoods. It's the strangest thing about generations. He was a salesman, right? He was a traveling salesman for Sunshine Biscuits. Everybody called him Cookie. (laughs) He was a very funny guy, except when he tried to get in front of an audience. Funny man, though. Was he around a lot when you were a kid? No, he was gone five days a week, really, on the road. So I didn't see him that often. His dad, uh, my grandfather Van Dyke, was kind of my mentor. And uh, had a great effect on me. Great man. One of the things uh, that your book is about is kind of bringing joy to everyday life, pursuing the things that enliven you on a regular basis. Did I tell you the title I wanted they wouldn't buy? What to do while circling the drain. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great title. They wouldn't go for it. (laughs) <laughs> Your book has a very genial tone. I can understand why they might. <laughs> um, but I wonder if that was something that you always did or something that you've learned in – I've heard you describe what you're living now as your third life. Yes, absolutely. I'm on a third marriage. I lost two wives to cancer. And uh, I – I'm having a, a life that very few people in my generation get. I'm extremely happy. I have my quartet that I sing with constantly. I'm a computer animator. And uh, life is just the best. And I don't worry. I'm way past being anxiety-ridden. Was that always the case? No, I, I worried a lot about my kids, uh, particularly during the 60s and the 70s. I, I pity a parent now with teenagers. It's it's worse than ever. But my kids uh, ended up being absolutely non-toxic to the world. They're great people. <laughs> when, your, uh, when your second wife died, um, I can't imagine that you expected that um, she would die before you did. No. No, both of them. Uh, the, the husband always goes first. You just assume that. And I wonder, I wonder if you had any idea of what your life could be like um, uh, without her. Oh, I have never. I didn't have a bachelorhood. I went from my mother directly into a marriage. I don't know what it is to be alone. I have to share life with someone. I can't. Uh, I have friends who are bachelors and enjoy it. Being alone. And facing life alone just isn't... I have to be able to share it with someone, to turn and speak to someone. I never dreamed that what happened to me was going to happen. 
and I ran through an angel half my age, and we're just we just celebrated our fourth wedding anniversary uh, on the 29th. What was it like for you in the time in between? Uh, bad. It was bad. I had a lot of friends, you know. Uh, I was kind of a sitting duck there for a while for widows. I was, I'd find a meatloaf on the front porch or, or some chicken soup or something. Look, if I'm, if I'm a widow and I found out that Dick Van Dyke is single, <laughs> I'm making a meatloaf. <laughs> yeah, but it was kind of – it was fun, but on the other hand – Good-looking guy. You got a nice house in Malibu. <laughs> <laughs> and from, I have never walked up to a strange woman in my life. I never had the nerve. I was at the SAG Awards and saw this girl back in the green room. And I was talking to a movie star, Gwyneth Paltrow, I think. And I saw her. I said, excuse me. I went over and said, hi, my name is Dick, and sat right down. And she said, weren't you and Mary Poppins or something? She had no idea who I was. But uh, for the first time in my life, I, I kept at it. I kept at it. She would bring me uh, dinner at night. Sometimes she would come by and cook me a dinner. And I proposed, I think, for a year before she finally decided to do it. We were a little worried about the age difference, uh, but no one ever said a word. What kind of plans do you make when you're 90? Hardly any. <laughs> Hardly <laughs> any. You don't make plans, you, except for the day. I always make a list before I go to bed at night of what I'm going to do in the morning, and it always turns out to be way too ambitious. No, uh, living life day to day becomes important. And I've gotten a few 90 years old guys up off their wheelchairs or off their walkers. And if I can get them to the gym for 10 or 12 minutes a day, they'll start They'll start walking. You, you can't believe what it does. What do you do at the gym? I go in, in the morning, I do a treadmill, and then I do uh, regular lifting weights, uh, a whole routine of weightlifting. I never overdo it. If I, my body starts to feel tired, I quit. I don't have... I'm not bound to do the whole circuit. And I do a lot of, uh, in the water, get in the pool, because that's the, good, because I have all the infirmities of, of the, my age, arthritis and, and the CPOD and peripheral, all those things. But keeping moving is the answer, and blueberries for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dick Van Dyke, I am so grateful to you for taking the time to come beyond Bullseye. What, what an honor to get to meet you and talk to you. It's been more than a pleasure. Thank you, Jed. I hope I answered everything sufficiently. Absolutely. Okay. Dick Van Dyke, his newest book is called Keep Moving and Other Tips and Truths About Aging. After a break, pop culture critic and writer Margaret Wappler joins us for a guided tour of Bjork's classic album, Post. Plus, I'll tell you why the designer Ralph Lauren might just be the force we need to unite America in these divided times. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org. And NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Republic Records. Jordan Smith captured our hearts as he became the winner of The Voice. His debut album, Something Beautiful, features the inspirational anthem, Stand in the Light. Jordan Smith's Something Beautiful, available at iTunes now. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. StoryCorps travels the country collecting the wit, wisdom, and poetry in the stories of everyday people. The StoryCorps podcast showcases these unscripted stories about real life. Listen in and discover meaning in the words of someone you might not notice walking down the street. 
Find the StoryCorps podcast now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's time once again for Cannonball. We take classic albums, or albums that should be considered classics, and find out what makes them great. This week, we're joined by the pop culture critic and writer Margaret Wappler. I'm Margaret Wappler, and I'm going to be talking about Bjork's Post. There's kind of a narrative out there about Bjork, and it started way back at the beginning of her solo career, 1993. I wanted to talk about Bjork in this album in particular because I feel like this is when she really cemented this kind of range that she would continue to play with throughout her career. On one side, there's the Bjork that often gets called like a pixie or a sprite or something light and airy, a wood nymph. I mean, I was reading reviews of Post um, from Rolling Stone and LA Times and other uh, venues at the time, and almost every single journalist calls her a pixie or a sprite at some point. Those are words that can feel a little condescending or diminutive. Margaret has another word she uses. It's true that she does have this kind of persona of being this light little gremlin. But then, you know, I use the word gremlin because gremlins are also a type of monster. They're also this kind of menace. They're mischievous. They break things. And all of those elements of Bjork's persona, I think, are also really on display in post. That for every moment that she's sort of this charming little kitten purring in your ear, she's also going to shriek and be shrill and almost break your eardrums at times. Bjork's Post came out in 1995, and it was the height of the grunge era. Uh, Most other popular records at the time were steeped in guitars, steeped in like a really masculine grunge fashion, Nirvana, Alice in Chains. These are the bands that were dominating the radio waves at the time. Bjork's Post was really much more in the electronic mode. Um, And of course, there were plenty of practitioners of that too at the time. But the difference in Bjork's Post was that it really was this like breakout work of feminine, emotional electronica. So many of the songs are fully in um, a kind of like crisis mode or um, pining for a lover. Um, You know, all these kind of different emotions that really created a landscape for the whole record. Let's hear a little bit of Army of Me, the first track on the album. This song has a bass line that producer Graham Massey came up with, and Bjork wrote the lyrics of this song thinking about her little brother, actually. Um, At the time, he was going through some sort of, like, crazy, hedonistic period, and this is her, basically, as a big sister saying, hey, listen, get your act together. Of course, it can function as so many different things, though. You listen to it, and it's pretty much just an anthem for all of us to, like, get our act together, to be independent, to be fierce, to just do whatever we want to do, don't complain, get your stuff together. And if you 
things, too, I love so much about Post is that it really is this showcase purely for Bjork's vocals, for, like, the range of attack that she can give to any song. I mean, she can come in there and be really soft and seductive, or she can come in there and, like, throttle someone. This is Hyper Ballad, the second song from Bjork's Post. On a mountain, right at the top, this beautiful view from the top of the mountain. Part of the reason I wanted to talk about Hyper Ballad is because it's such a great follow up song to Army of Me. It really shows right here, just from first to second song, the kind of transitions that you're going to be trafficking in with this album. The first song was ready to grab you by the collar and say, Don't mess with me. This song goes into a completely different place. It's like much more dreamy, it's much more spaced out. It's literally based on a dream that she had. And you know, it's her having these dark fantasies about, like, what would happen if she threw her body into the ocean. Um, so it just has a different kind of complexity to it. And I also just think it's really beautiful. It's just a very gorgeous, sumptuous, like the sun's just shining on this cold ocean kind of song. This is It's Oh So Quiet. It's oh so quiet. Shh, shh. It's oh so still. Yeah, you don't see this one coming, do you? It's oh so quiet. Uh, This is a cover of a song by Betty Hutton, who also takes the whole screaming, speaking, whispering mode. But Bjork builds on it wonderfully. She takes that whole convention of just spazzing out in certain moments when you're falling in love and just explodes it with this 20-piece orchestra. It's wonderful. It's like it's like this song from a long lost madcap musical from the fifties. Start another big riot. You blow a fuse, simple. Damn cuts loose, simple. So what's the use? Wow! Of falling in Yeah, this was actually the last song that she recorded for the album. And she purposely recorded this as as a kind of like, look, I want this album to be as schizophrenic as possible. I want it to shock you. I want every single song to have its own kind of shock. You're all 
If Bjork's a pixie, she's not one you should leave alone with anything fragile, like your baby man heart. Don't do it. She will rip it to shreds. Let's listen to Possibly Maybe, which is the eighth song on post. This is one of my absolute favorites on the record. Part of it is because this first bit really reminds me of like a radio signal from a faraway planet. This is definitely so ethereal, so from outer space. Part of the reason I really love Possibly Maybe too is because it really strikes a very subtle, sophisticated, emotional point. This is a hard mood to convey. Possibly Maybe. I mean, in its name itself, it's ambivalent. It's like, I'm not sure. And that, that's a hard kind of emotion to capture in a song. But you feel it in this song, the kind of like seductive allure into a certain mood, but then somebody kind of holding off right at the edge. Like they can't get all the way into it. As much as I definitely enjoy solitude, I wouldn't mind perhaps spending little time with you. Sometimes, sometimes, possibly, maybe, possibly, maybe. When you compare the kind of understated elegance that this song has with It's Oh So Quiet, like that's the mercurial thrash of this record right there. Like, how can the same person that screamed in your ear about falling in love be this person who's just going to sort of, like, chill and whisper? Bjork has this great quote uh, about people saying that electronic music is cold or unemotional. And she says, you know, if that's the case in a song, that's on the musician, not on the machines. And she's a great example of a person who's found a way to um, completely pour in the emotional into machines. Your eruptions and disasters I keep calm Admiring your lover I keep calm I definitely feel like Post is one of the best albums she ever made, Um, in part because it was this brave, out there, um, really bold statement that, hey, I can do anything. I can really try out just about any style and still sound like me because I always ground it in this essential Bjorkism. And this essential language that she used that had to do with electronica, but she was able to... Uh, Rome in that territory so much more than most people could. Possibly, 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 possibly,
even in a pop context, even when you're still writing what is essentially a pop song that you want as many listeners to gravitate to as possible, you can still do these really wild, crazy, experimental things. Margaret Wappler on the album she would add to the pop culture canon, Post, the 1995 record by Bjork. You can find an essay she wrote about Bjork in the anthology, Here She Comes Now. Margaret's also one of the hosts of our pop culture panel show, Pop Rocket. Her first novel, Neon Green, will be out in July. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. A few years ago, I made a video for my menswear blog about lowheads. If you haven't heard of these guys, they're obsessed with Ralph Lauren. The first generation came up in Brooklyn and Manhattan in the late 80s, but it's sort of a global thing these days. They trade and buy and sell vintage polo like it was, you know, Stuben glass or something. They wear it head to toe, completely obsessed. I got a comment on the video. Basically, it said that Polo wasn't a real luxury brand, like Hermes or whatever, that it was phony. And, you know, yeah, it is phony. It isn't real. That's kind of the point. Ralph Lauren was born Ralph Lipschitz. He was not a Polo-playing socialite. His father was an immigrant. He was a house painter. The power of Ralph Lauren comes from an outsider's understanding of an insider's culture. Ralph Lauren understands that America and Americanness are social constructs among generations of immigrants and outsiders. He doesn't pretend to have had ancestors on the Mayflower. He's self-made, like so many mythic Americans, and he offers the symbols of America to anyone who wants them. They just have to wander into a Macy's. Is Ralph Lauren's style really American? Yes, because there is no real America. My great-great-grandparents were immigrants. Your parents were immigrants. She's an immigrant on down the line. Indigenous Americans came here from Asia. They've been systematically excluded from America, the nation-state. There is no real America. America is a series of symbols. Its best qualities are abstract. Their foundational quality is that they can be grabbed and used by anyone. Jay-Z, Jack Kennedy, Sonia Sotomayor, whoever. What Ralph Lauren understands is that this abstractness, this flexibility, it isn't a weakness of our country. It's a strength. And it extends from the civic to the aesthetic. Something I noticed about the lowheads back when I interviewed them was that some of their favorite pieces were explicitly representational. They were less interested in ski clothes than they were in sweaters with set-in pictures of skiers. They were very comfortable with the semiotics of success and American identity. Actually, they were so comfortable, they were enthusiastic about displaying symbols of symbols. One of the things about privilege is that it can lead to an unexamined life. You're not really asked to examine the social structure if it isn't challenging you. 
If you're on the outside looking in, you're always feeling out the symbols, trying to figure out how to use them yourself. That's the essential insight of Ralph Lauren. All clothes are symbols. All clothes are social constructs. To be American is about agreeing to a set of symbols, ones that are as accessible to Donald Trump as they were to Martin Luther King. Lauren looks great in a cowboy hat and blue jeans or a New York banker's suit. He knows his Americanness is a compilation of abstract markers and values and not a family tree. And he offers to sell it all to us at a reasonable price. What's more American than that? That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Perello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. My dog in the studio today is Coco. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham, featuring Margaret Wappler, who you heard earlier on the program. This week, web memes, eggplant emojis, and a report on what's happening at South by Southwest from Winter Mitchell. Pop Rocket. Find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. If you like our show, please do us a big favor and rate us on iTunes. Those ratings help other people find the show, which helps us keep doing the show. We're actually featured on iTunes this week, so it's an especially great week to write us a review. And if you want to chat or ask a question, you can find links to our email, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, as well as all of our past shows on our website at MaximumFun.org. I guess that's just about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 